Good evening. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 17 if you need a Bible. Um, I think there's some on this table here. Raise your hand, Stephen. I'll get up and give them to you. He owes me that. Well, we're continuing through Matthew. And I imagine after our time tonight, you'll have more questions than you did when you entered into our time tonight. (laughs) That sounds great, Sam. I mean, we get a whole slew of things that we're going to talk about. The transfiguration, which if that's not enough to boggle your minds, we get to talk about demon possession uh, and taxes as well. So, hey, fun. Well, let's start off by reading verses 1 through 11, and then we'll move forward. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these scriptures and some of the others, Father, we're delving into areas that, Lord, I don't think anyone fully can comprehend, but you have written them for our benefit, for our learning. And so my desire here isn't to know all that can be known about these passages, but, Lord, to uncover what is necessary for us to know here and now. Lord, your words are timeless. They have been speaking to hearts throughout the ages. Speak to our hearts here tonight. And may this time be beneficial in everybody's life with the things that we are facing, with the things that we are troubled with, with our doubts, with our struggles. Father, meet us at this place and minister, I pray, to all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So the transfiguration. Now, the word transfiguration means metamorphosis, basically. It's the same word that's found in Romans 12, 2. I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's a change that's taking place. In Mark and Luke's gospel, there's an account of these things as well. Uh, Luke's gospel mentions that the transfiguration took place while Jesus was praying. And so we get some insight of when this actually happened. And we know as they are going to go down the mountain later that this most likely was taking place in the evening, which is why a light would shine and be a little bit overwhelming, especially in the nighttime. It's kind of the -the glow-in-the-dark Jesus thing taking place. And so it's overwhelming. The cloud comes in the bright light with the cloud. 
why Peter wants to build these shelters, these monuments for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He's trying to make a kind of camp for them. And so those are some of the things that are taking place. But let me ask you guys, let me involve you right away. What's going on here? Why is this taking place? I'd like to hear your thoughts. Why is this whole transfiguration thing happening? What's the point of it? Why did it have to happen? Why is it here in Scripture for us to read? What are we supposed to get out of it? Because I believe there's a lot of things, but I'd like to hear some of your thoughts. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Moses, and we're going to talk about the other too. <clears throat> I'm doing things a little different tonight. <laughs> You're saying, no, you always do things different. Um, we know from Deuteronomy 31 that Moses died and was buried. We know that he died and God had him buried, so God took care of that. But we know he died. Elijah, on the other hand, in Second Kings, we know never died. He was taken up. So we've got two different scenarios here. We have a man who died, who God had put buried so that they wouldn't know where he was. And then we have a man who never died, who was taken up to heaven and was not because God took him. Two different individuals are here on the mount. It doesn't say that there was just a, an apparition. It says he was talking there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. I don't believe that these were spirits. It doesn't say the spirit of Moses and the spirit of Elijah. The scripture really knows nothing much about spirits when it talks in these realms. The idea of resurrection includes a body. When there's going to be a resurrected body, it's a physical body. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, said, See, spirit has not flesh and bone as you see I have. And so there's no reason not to believe this is actually Moses and Elijah. What the heck are they doing here? How did they get there? What on earth is taking place? I, I think you're right when you talk about Moses representing the law. The law came through Moses, Elijah being a prophet and being an epitome of what the prophets were supposed to be. In Micah chapter 4, verse 5, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, which is what the disciples are referring to later on. Isn't Elijah supposed to come back? And Jesus says, Yes, that's going to happen, and he is going to restore all things, but I tell you that he has already come in John the Baptist. What? There's another thing. What the heck is that about? We'll get to that one in a minute, too. Like I said, you'll probably leave here tonight a little more confused than you came in, if I'm doing things right. Um, what's taking place here, I believe, is God is allowing us to get a little peek of who Jesus really is. I love Spurgeon wrote it in this way. He has lifted the corner and allowed these three to see what was always there. That we're getting a, a glimpse of the radiance of Jesus. John wrote about Jesus, we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Son. Beheld his glory, this idea of radiance that was there, something about Jesus that was incredible. I was telling my wife, I said, I'm going to tell a story about you. And she always fears, and she goes, you need permission. Um, <laughs> and so I got permission. When I had gone to China years ago, it was 1986, I know, because my wife was pregnant with our twins at that time. And I left knowing that she was pregnant and went away for, I think it was two weeks, and came back. And when I came back, to landed in LAX looking for my wife. She had 
gotten a new haircut. Her hair was cut shorter, and she was wearing this pink pregnant outfit. Um, you know, they kind of are like overalls, but not really. It's a dress, but, you know, they got to be bigger. And I remember when I saw her, she was just glowing. She was just radiant. She was just the most beautiful thing my eyes had seen. And I saw her, and I was just like, that's my wife. And she just seemed to be beaming. That there was something there within her that was just shining. And you guys know there's situations like that. There are people, maybe it's your children, when something happens and they just, their face lights up. And you say, oh, man, their face was just lit. And there's, their countenance changes. Well, here is the Son of God, and there is this radiance about him that we're actually seeing in to who he really is, the magnificence of who he is. And it's overwhelming. He's transfigured. He is like in a different state. Something is going on here that is hard to grasp. Erwin McManus from Mosaic thinks that this is the possibility of proof that there is time travel. Okay? I don't know about that. I'm not ready to go there. But something is happening that is out of the ordinary. Jesus is being shown in his glory, which is something that was going to take place after the resurrection. Moses, who was dead, is there. What about the whole Abraham's bosom thing? I thought he was supposed to be in Hades waiting. Well, he's here. Did he get a get-out-of-jail-free card kind of a thing, and now he's able to stand on the mount? What, what's going on? And Elijah, where have you been? Now all of a sudden you're here. All these things are taking place, and it's as if all these events that are in the past and are in the future are happening in a moment of time. That there's this little glimpse of eternity showing up right here before the disciples. Luke's gospel says that Peter was fighting sleep, that he was half asleep, he wakes up, and then all of a sudden he sees Moses and Elijah, and then he says, Lord, I, I, we got to do something. It's getting late. Let's build some tabernacles here for you, some places for you guys to stay. Just came to mind and thought I'd throw it out there. You know, it's like... What would you say? I don't think I would say that. But Peter is trying to lay hold of this moment. And he's trying to take it in and make it last. And as he speaks about this, let's build some places, some dwellings for you guys so that you can have some shelter, so that we can have a place for you. Let's kind of set up camp. All of a sudden, the light comes from the cloud overshadows him, the voice comes through the cloud that says, this is my beloved son whom I love, hear him. And it's specific because after the voice speaks, they're terrified, they fall down and they look up, there's only Jesus. And it's as if God is saying, more important than Moses and the law, more important than all the prophets and Elijah is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Jesus' words come back. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The words I speak, they're not mine, but I only speak what the Father has given me to speak. And so as they hear the voice, as they fall down afraid, Jesus touches them, tells them, don't be afraid. They look up. They saw no one except Jesus It's as if God is saying, this is the one you really need to be focused on. And you're not supposed to set up camp. You can't memorialize this event. You need to focus on my son. And I think Peter wanting to set up camp there is wanting to kind of make this last. Have you ever been there? 
where you just want to stay in one place. It's beautiful. Oh, let's find a place where we can just stay here. Let's rent a room. Let's not, let's call in sick. You shouldn't do that, by the way. That'd be lying if you're not sick. But you don't want to leave. And I think Peter was overwhelmed and saying, what can we do to, to make things last here? And that's really not what's supposed to be happening. You see, Jesus revealed right here, don't tell anyone in verse 9 what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Why do you think Jesus told him that? Why wouldn't you want people to know about this spectacular event that took place until after he was risen from the dead? He said this before. We've kind of talked on this before. What are some reasons why Jesus would say, don't tell anyone about this until after the sun has been risen? What do you think? You know, there's one passage of Scripture where they wanted to take Jesus, but Jesus would not commit himself to men because he knew what was in men. That people wanted to use Jesus for their purposes. That we want the Messiah, you fit the bill, we want deliverance from Rome or from whatever oppression we're feeling, you fit the bill. We want to use you for our purposes. And if they hear about this, they can take something that is amazing and want to manipulate it, to use it, so that they could accomplish their purposes. There's an interesting example, I think, of this that takes place in, in Numbers chapter 21, the situation where the children of Israel are, are doubting God and complaining. And so these fiery serpents are sent out that bite them, and what they need to do is look upon the serpent, brass serpent that is placed up on a pole. If they look on that, then they will be healed which is an interesting symbol in itself. Here we have the serpent representing sin, brass representing judgment, being lifted up, representing the cross, and then they're bringing healing. But never mind that. The point is they saw this, they were healed, and it was an amazing thing. Well, later on, Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 finds this serpent and he smashes it, destroys it. And the reason he destroys it is because they are offering incense up to it. Here is this thing that they looked at and they saw and they said, oh, this thing brought us healing. Let's now worship this thing. You see, Peter wanted to hold on to this moment and he was seeing Moses and he was seeing Elijah and he was seeing Jesus and he's saying, this is great. The three of you, we can conquer the world. We've got, let's set up the camp here. And if people knew about this event, they would probably be thinking, okay, let's use this power. Let's worship this moment. But you see, they were wanting to memorialize and worship the wrong thing. They needed to worship the right thing. The same thing that happened with the serpent could take place with Jesus. They would worship what they wanted him to do instead of what he really came to do. And so their focus could be shifted to the wrong thing. And that's why God said, listen to him. Hear him. Because it's important you understand what's going to happen. And then he talks about his resurrection from the dead. And it's important that they understand that there's going to be a death before there's going to be a resurrection. And then they ask about Elijah, and he tells them, yeah, Elijah is going to restore all things, but I'm telling you, he's already come. And they realize that he was talking about John the Baptist and that they did to John the same things that they're going to do to the man, son of man. He's going to suffer at their hands. And so... John the Baptist came with the same spirit that Elijah was filled with, the spirit of God, preparing the way for the Lord. That's why prepare the way of the Lord. 
Who is this man? He's a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He is fulfilling this role that Elijah was supposed to fulfill by coming before the Messiah, preparing his way, making declaration of who he was, making his path straight, letting people know that he was here. And so he came with the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that Elijah had, and in preparing the way for Jesus, fulfilling what I believe Malachi was talking about, at least the first portion of Malachi. There's going to be another portion where Elijah is going to do more stuff, apparently. What? I don't know. But he's still up there floating around somewhere. He's still Elijah out in the, out in the clouds there, taken up and going to come back. And so uh, a lot of speculation of how that's going to happen and what that's going to take place, or even the two witnesses in Revelation, if one of them is Elijah. Uh, don't know. Um, so anyway, clear as mud. Everyone got some ideas of what's going on here? Just something amazing is happening. Its focus is Jesus. He's there to, to help us understand that he is the one we need to listen to. Moses represents the prophets, or the law, Elijah the prophets, but the culmination is Jesus. Hear him. And that really does need to be our focus. Listen to Jesus. We can get so caught up in hearing men, hearing things, reading articles, listening to podcasts, all great things. But you need to listen to Jesus. You need to hear him. And so don't substitute the voice of God with the voice of someone else. I love listening to studies and to podcasts, certain ones, um, certain ones I don't listen to at all. They get me angry. Um, but then there's other ones that I do enjoy that challenge me and I, I really find engaging. And it's real easy to just listen to those and not listen to God. And we need to hear him. No other voice matters. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's not God's voice, you're settling for less. Then Jesus comes down. Right when he comes down, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith of a small, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Interesting set of verses, and I expect some questions out of this as well. Um, First of all, Jesus comes down from this great mountain experience, and there's a demon. Um, That's kind of how life is, ups and downs. Here he comes, back, okay, here you are, back in the real world, and here's this situation, this man just pleading before Jesus to have mercy on his son. The word seizures that is used there is actually the word moonstruck. It has to do with lunatic. Um, It's, but the seizures, it's rightly um, translated as epileptic. It has to do with seizures. It's not saying that anyone with epilepsy is demon possessed. But the result of some of these seizures they thought was caused by the moon. And so they named it or entitled it Moonstruck, just a little history. But the idea this this seizure was being prompted by demonic activity. It wasn't just a nervous disorder or other things like that. It was actually spiritually provoked. And so this is taking place. And Jesus' words here, does anyone have just... Like, does it hit them kind of hard? You know, my son, I'm begging you, have mercy on him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him here to me. It's like, oh, 
geez, sorry. How long would I have to put up? I, I, I feel like my kids. <laughs> How long do I have to do this for you? How long do we have to put up with your you know, shenanigans? It's kind of humbling. And it's implying from this point that Jesus was expecting them to be able to handle this. In chapter 10, he had given them power over demonic activities. And they were all, yeah, we're bad, we're bad. They're all marching through, and Jesus has given them this authority. But no Jesus with them, and all of a sudden the authority goes. It's like that group of kids. You see this group of boys walking down the street. There's about seven of them. And they're all walking tough and they're all yelling. You drive by and you catch their eye. And one of the kids is, hey, what are you looking at? You're looking at me? And he's all tough guy. And you go to the store and you take care of business and you're driving back. And then that one boy is by himself. And he won't even look up now. He's just down. And you're just like, hey, what's up, man? Where are your friends now? He's not the same guy without his buddies. They're not the same guys without Jesus. And I love it says, they came to him in private. <laughs> they didn't go to him when everyone was around because, Jesus, why aren't we that good? You know, it's like they don't want that to be known around everybody, but they go to him in private and say, what's going on? Which means they did pray, but it didn't work. And Jesus tells them why. He says, because you have so little faith. I tell you, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Any questions? Mustard seed's a tiny seed. It's a tiny little, it's actually a seed inside of a seed. They actually sell them. You can buy them in your herbs and spices stores, if there's such a thing. In your, but where was their faith? Faith is always in something. You don't have faith in faith. Could be, or their faith was in their ability and not in Jesus. I mean, we don't know what their little faith exactly was, but we we know that Jesus is making a statement here that is haunting to us because it, it seems to indicate that there is so much potential that we are not tapping into. A couple of things that I, I think are important to notice when Jesus talks about these kinds of things, about faith and the ability to say to a mountain, get up here and move there. It's usually in regard or connected to helping others. That we don't see this faith being used for your purposes. If you will say to that Toyota, be a Porsche, nothing is impossible for you. The idea is in helping others. It's connected to that, and it always is. When he's talking about faith, it's always in that of in healing or helping someone other than themselves. And so there seems to be a connection with this kind of faith and nothing being impossible for them. We know throughout the rest of the scriptures that not everyone was healed. Not all the miracles took place. God still does miracles. But let's be honest, or I can be honest, I still have little faith. I'd like to have more, and I'm, you know, it's one of those things where how do you get more faith? Mm, I'm going to try real hard to have faith. I really believe, I really believe. No, I, I know that God can do all things. And I want to have faith in a God who can do all things. But then I wonder, what things does he want to do? Because maybe he doesn't want to do this thing. And so I question, and so I wonder, and so I, I worry. And does all things mean all things? Nothing is impossible? Where does free will come in? 
there is a scripture that says, if you ask anything according to my will, he will hear. And, and so now the question becomes one of relational. It's not just a matter of wanting and believing. It's believing in the things that God is wanting and doing. Um, and so that comes into play now, having the heart of God as well as the mind of God to do the things of God and how that transpires and shows up. You know, Paul had uh, Timothy with him and Epaphroditus who was sick unto death. And Paul said that God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on us as well. But Paul wasn't able to heal him, apparently, or Timothy who had to take wine for his frequent stomach aches. Um, and, and so there's instances where healing doesn't just take place. Did Paul lack faith? Um, boy, I wouldn't say that, you know, not to him. Um, and, and so those are things that I think challenge us. Am I relationally listening to, hearing, and doing the will of God? Am I in connection with God where my prayers are in line with him and the things that he wants? Because Jesus, man, his words are, how, how long do I expect you guys to be doing this? Especially to his disciples. I expected you to be able to handle this kind of thing. And I get a sense from Jesus' words back in chapter 16 where he says, this is what's going to happen. After Peter's confession, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells him, flesh and blood's revealed this to you. Now I'm telling you something new. I'm going to be handed over to their hands. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die and then raise again. He's tell, he told them that last chapter. And I think things are changing not only with the disciples, but with Jesus and the relationship with them. Suddenly, things aren't going the way they expected. They're heading towards Jerusalem, and there's going to be this foreboding. This is going to happen, you guys. This is going to happen. And now when they start letting him down, they, they don't do these things. He's like, you guys, how long have I been to put up with you? There's a frustration that's genuine. I don't think it's wrong that Jesus feels frustrated. I don't think it's wrong that we get frustrated. I think frustration is okay. I think it's okay for him to say, you guys, how long do I have to put up with this? And you guys all can understand that. You've all been there where you felt that way. Someone at work, a fellow student, you know, a child or someone in your family. How long do we have to deal with this? that frustration that is there. Imagine now God feeling that way towards you because of your lack of faith in him. That hurts. It's like, ouchie, you know, that, that's grieving. I think it's his disciples because he, they called him, they, I mean, I think he was talking to them specifically because the disciples could not heal him. And I believe that's who was trying to heal him. That's why they said, why couldn't we do that? So I think it was directed towards them, you know. Well, I, I, I think, you know, Jillian hit on something here where the perspective thing is really an important thing. You know, it's not that you need a lot, but you need the right thing. You know, and, and a little of the right thing goes the right way and goes a long way. And so wherever their faith was or lack of faith was, it wasn't at the place where it needed to be so that it could start moving forward. And so they, they were hearing Jesus, but what were they doing with those things that they were hearing? You know, they were hearing the truths of who he was, that this is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What did that do in them? Where did that take their minds and take that? It's, it's like those people who, you know, are, are put in a situation where, you know, they're, they lose their job and their health is bad and you talk to them and they're filled with hope. And then there's this other person who lost their job and their health is bad and the world is ending as they know it. And they're both in the same situation.
In fact, I've seen people where they've lost their job, their health is bad, and they have hope, and this person has health, has a job, and they're despairing. And you're like, what's the difference here? You both claim faith in Jesus, but this person has hope because they're connecting in the right perspective and able to see that just the little bit of faith in the right thing is a lot. This person has faith in nothing. Well, again, I think the perspective, just like those two scenarios I, you know, made up but didn't, you know, it's like you see these things happening and you wonder how can this person have such faith in God when they're such struggling? I mean, people at the point of death who have this incredible faith. And then these people who it's like really things aren't bad. You know, I know, yeah, you've had a couple of things happen that you don't like, but you're really not in a bad situation, and their world is going downhill. This person, they're going up. This person's going down. What's the difference? And I think it's their perspective and what they're having faith in. You know, that little faith can take you forward, or no faith can leave you bankrupt and empty. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we get focused on the things, mountains, Okay, wow, mountains are big, you know, move mountains. You know, I think literal mountains. And I, I really believe that Jesus is saying, you have no idea what God would do if you would have faith in him. That he could change the world that you live in in, in so many ways. And yeah, it might not be literal mountains or not, might not be literal fig trees taken up and thrown here into the ocean or whatever. I mean, it's God will do the impossible if you would believe. And having that ability to believe in a God who can do the impossible. And, and Jesus is pushing us, and he always does, pushes us to a place of uncomfortable faith. Where we are out on the ledge and we are leaning on God. Faith is always in something else. It's always in something. You know, again, faith isn't stand by itself. You have faith in something. You know, you have faith that the chair will hold you, faith that your car will start, faith, you know, the lights will turn on. You have faith in something, and so the faith we're having here is to be in God, not our faith. Yeah, or, you know, uh, well, I didn't, you know, I drove over the speed limit today, so God's not going to hear me, or worse, you know, or I cussed someone out on the freeway, so now I can't ask God for anything. I didn't, but you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to throw something out there, if, if some of you can relate, okay? Um, I didn't drive today, so I'm safe. Well, I did, but anyway. The idea now is it's connected to our goodness. If I'm good enough, God will hear me, and then, you know, it'll happen. Now, the scripture says that a righteous prayer, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. A person who's in right standing with God can do a lot. But it doesn't mean it's your goodness that God hears and then has to answer. And so, again, it's very relational. It's very complicated. It's not just follow these three steps and this is it. But Jesus says it very simply. You have such little faith. If you had a little faith in the right thing, you could move mountains, you know. And so nothing's impossible for you. Now, does anyone have a verse 21 and wonder why I didn't read it? Yeah. Okay, just wondered. It depends on your translation. You guys didn't ask it, so I thought I would. You've got one? If you have a New King James uh, or King James Bible, you have a verse 21 that says, however, this comes out only by prayer and fasting, says something like that? Okay, some of you have that and some of you don't. You guys cool with that or do you want me to talk about that? There are... A number of different translations. The translations that we have, whether it's a New King James, King James, those are taken from certain texts. They're called the text receptus. They're received texts that are quite a few of them that are about, that they've used to translate the scriptures. And so in those texts, there is this portion. There are some other manuscripts that are older, Specifically to the Vaticanus 
and the Sinaiticus, two older texts that they found that didn't contain these passages or this one passage. Now, part of this passage is found in Luke and Mark's account where it says this comes out only by prayer, but there's also an addition in those where it says and fasting. The and fasting, they believe, was added by someone who was reading the text and put this place in. And then it was duplicated in process, and so it became a part of some of the translations that we have. The reason is it's not in the New International Version, and I'm not, I don't think the New American Standard either, or the Revised Standard, is because those translations were taken from these other texts. Now, all this to say, there are certain portions of Scripture where you'll find this was not found in these texts. The same thing is true in 1 John where it says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three are one, or something like that. There's a few places where these things happen. It depends on what translation these came from. Don't get worried. Oh no, the Bible, it's got errors. It's not errors, it's depending on what translation what um, what manuscripts they're being translated from. Some have some passages, some don't have those passages. There's few differences, and none of the differences make a difference. Okay? Yeah. It, it doesn't, you don't lose content with the changes that are in translations. And it doesn't mean that this isn't God's word. All it means is that man is involved. The scriptures are God-breathed. As God gave them, the people penned them, they wrote them down, and it was good. It went from God to them to the pen. But then it went from them to other people to other pens. And it, it, you start involving man, and you're going to have errors. They're minimal. There's no other document that we have that is as accurate and reliable and consistent to the original as the scriptures. So you can trust God has had his hand in it. I heard uh, Walter Martin, who I used to sit under, described it in this way. They had the old Victrola. Remember the RCA label? They had the dog sitting there, and they had the cone from their album, and it says he can hear his master's voice. The same thing happens. What was happening is that needle is scratching the record and picking up the vibration, but those scratches cause little and little more damage as it goes around, but you can still hear the master's voice. As it goes from hand to hand to hand, there might be little problems that happen where someone says, oh, and, and fasting, yeah, fasting's good, I'm going to add fasting. And so it comes in the scripture and you have it there. It might be a little problem, but it doesn't stop us from hearing the master's voice. And so understand that there's different manuscripts that the translations come from. King James uses the receptive texts. The NIV uses the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus texts and some other older ones that they feel are more reliable because they were earlier. Some people think, no, they're not because these were more well-produced. Not going to go there. Uh, it doesn't matter. The biggest thing you need to understand is if you can pick up a translation that you can read and that you can understand, that's what you need to do. And you want a translation instead of a transliteration or a paraphrase. The New Living Translation is great, but it's a paraphrase. Okay, If you're going to do any studying, I'd be better to have a translation than a paraphrase because a paraphrase is getting someone saying, I think he means this. Now, it's good to listen to. I love Phillips, J.B. Phillips' translation. He's a scholar. He translated things, and it gives you some neat understanding. But that's why some of you might say, oh, there's not a text there. I just wanted to talk about that briefly. So if someone had that question, it would come up. Okay, we're... We're doing wonders here. Um, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. This is now the second time that he talks about his dying. He predicts that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. 
this idea of being delivered has the idea of betrayal. Um, so he's kind of bringing things further about. And again, his disciples were filled with grief. There's a change taking place in the relationship with Jesus and the disciples, with the disciples and their understanding of Jesus. It's starting to become a lot clearer. And they don't like the way it's looking. Have you ever found that to be the case in life? You just don't like the way life is looking. You know, like God is working, but sometimes I don't like it because it's going to change the things maybe I was comfortable with. Have you guys ever been there? I've been there. It's like, oh, things are going good. I got an idea. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to go. Here, I'm going to take this rug. Get ready because I'm about to pull it. You ready? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> You're going to do what? Yeah, I'm going to pull the rug out from under you. No, God, you wouldn't do that. You're... You have good things planned. I just, I had my daily bread and look at what it said, God. It said this. Sometimes God's plans are difficult. And they're hard to wrap our minds around. And the disciples just, they couldn't. They just couldn't. And we know that from what transpires later on. They had, he kept talking about dying and raising from the dead and, and they're just bummed out because Dying happens, raising from the dead. Well, that doesn't usually happen. And so they had a hard time believing that. Verse, anything on that, those few verses? Anything jump out to you guys there? Okay, let's talk about taxes. Uh, just briefly. And this is actually a temple tax, so it's a little different. After Jesus and his disciples arrived, verse 24, in Capernaum, the collectors of the two uh drachma temple tax came to peter and asked doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax yes he does he replied when peter came into the house jesus was the first to speak what do you think simon he asked from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own children or from others from others peter answered then the children are exempt jesus said to him but so that we may not cause offense go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, there's a few things I find intriguing about this passage. Of course, the obvious one is getting a coin out of a fish. That, that's a pretty neat trick. Um, This temple tax was something that was prescribed. You can find it in Exodus chapter 30, that the tax was for the temple, for the maintenance and the keeping up of the temple. The children of Israel were to give this tax, this amount, which was totaled about 35 cents, which was still a good amount of money at that time. Um, they were supposed to give this, and Rome allowed this to take place. Rome said they're able to give, Josephus writes about it, that Rome is able to give this tax, or allow the children of Israel to give this tax for their worship. When the temple was burnt down to the ground in AD 70, Rome said, I want that tax and more. And so then Rome started getting that tax. And they didn't allow them to just not give it. They thought, oh boy, no more taxes. Taxes never seem to go down. Have you noticed that? Um, so they were supposed to give. Now, Anything stand out to you? Or what, what do you guys get from these passages? I mean, a couple things stand out to me. Wait, is Jesus saying he's exempt? Yeah, he, he's basically, does the son have to pay tax to his father? And the answer would be no. You pay tax to someone who's not in your family. And, and so Jesus is saying, do you think I should have to pay tax if I'm God's son? Do I have to pay the tax for this temple? Really? And he goes, but I don't want to cause offense. But does he pay the tax? Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, this is something prescribed in the law that they were supposed to do. And so Jesus isn't breaking the law, and he doesn't want them to break the law. They were supposed to pay this tax. They were supposed to be a part of this, but he's pointing something out. First of all, he's saying, I'm kind of exempt because of who I am. And for some reason, he felt he needed to make that announcement. And 
you know, him and the temple have a few things. They had some issues, him and the temple. You know, they were worshiping the temple or swearing by the temple or, you know, making people pay money to come to the temple. You've made my father's house, you know, a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. I mean, Jesus and the temple have these issues that come up time and time again. And he's just wanting to let them know, listen, I don't have to pay tax. It's my father's house. But we need to do it. What I think is interesting, a couple of things. First of all, they go to Peter, who used to be it, or they go to Matthew. Um, did they go to Matthew? No, they went to Peter, but Matthew's writing it. They go to Peter. Matthew, who used to be a tax collector, is writing it. And they ask Peter, does your master pay taxes? And Peter goes, yeah. And then he goes back, and he's like, hey, you know, and then Jesus starts the conversation. But, you know, it's like... It's almost like Jesus catches Peter, like, don't talk for me. Okay, you, you don't talk for me. Do I have to pay tax for my own house? And, and so I think it's kind of funny because I think Peter gets busted here for talking for Jesus because he just says, yeah, he pays tax. And then Jesus says, do I have to pay its tax? Now, it's not a lot. What I'm curious, too, is did he not have the money? Did he have to go fishing to get the money? Appears to be. Or is he just wanting Peter to know, my father's going to take care of it. Go fishing and the fish will be there. And this isn't going to come from the, our account that Judas is pilfering money out of. <laughs> this is going to come from another source. Just intriguing to me. Just amazing. You know, so go fishing, get the fish, the coins will be there, and I'll cover you too. All right, Jesus got me. Jesus covered for Peter and the temple tax. And, and so kind of interesting things that took place here with this whole temple tax. But Jesus is not telling them, don't pay the temple tax. They were supposed to pay it. Jesus is saying, I, I'm different. I just want you to know, but I'm not here to cause an offense, so here's how we're going to take care of this tax. And I don't imagine too many people other than Peter and the disciples knew what was going on at this point. And so, you know, when he goes fishing and he pulls out the fish and there's this coin, what on earth is going in his mind? What the heck is this about? He just told me he's going to be dying. He's telling me he doesn't have to pay the tax. I go fishing, and there's a coin here, and he's got my coin and his covered, and I'm going to go drop this in the te temple. Here, you guys, you guys have no idea where this money came from. This, you, you wouldn't believe where this money came from. I'm putting this in, but this is from God, okay? This money is from God. Well, it's from a fish, but it's from God, I'm telling you. And he puts it in, and this has just got to be, Peter's mind's just getting blown all over the place right here. And there's just so many powerful things that I think uh, we need to take in from this. First of all, the uniqueness of Jesus throughout all this, who he is, that he is able to do the impossible, that we have to have faith in him, and that he will be there and cover the cost that we need for those things that God desires and requires to, to serve in what ways that he would have. It's interesting how Jesus does it because it's a little subversive, but it's still submissive. And only Jesus can do things like that, um, at least that well. Any questions now? Any thoughts on this yeah, motive is definitely an important thing. I mean, it doesn't tell us what their motive was, you know, although people can have good motives for the wrong things, you know. Um, it's like I meant to do good, my motive was good, but it just wasn't a good thing. But I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, our motives are important, you know, and that goes along with what we're really putting our faith in, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I was saying at the beginning, it's like, man, I have so many questions.
I look at these texts, you know, Transfiguration, I'm like, I still have questions. You know, and that's why I even shared with what Irwin said about time travel, because when he said that, I'm like, what? <laughs> what? But, it, you know, there's like so much I don't know. And so many things that I've heard that just don't click. You know, that I've, no, here, because I've, I've kind of been taught, and I know a lot of you have too, you get all the ducks in a row. You know, especially when it comes to, wait till we get to the end time stuff, you know. This is how everything plays out. But what's going on here? What, you know, where did Moses come from? Because he's not supposed to be here right now. He's, he's dead. He's not supposed to be showing up on some mountain. You don't do that. Okay? Not when you're dead. Not till after the resurrection. So what's happening well, no, but I think that's important to understand the mystery that's there, you know, because the, that mystery of not understanding completely what's going on or the multidimensional thing when you have the eternity and then you have time and how they intersect and how that plays out. I mean, the whole idea of string theory, you know, I mean, the whole idea is that there's different dimensions and realities that happen. I'm not going to go there because, um, yeah, I'm like, you know, yeah, and the string cheese theory, you know, I mean, that's the Brian Regan joke. It's like, I, I don't know about that, but there's still a lot more than what we fully understand. And now, you know, even as science delves in, they're starting to talk about these things that one time were like, no, that's, you know, superstition. And now they're talking about it as science. And it's amazing to hear. And then you have something like this in the scripture, and it's like, well, it's kind of in the Bible. But we just never saw it because we were trying to put it in our little line map. You know, here's our chronolo chronological how things happen and it's not all fitting. They knew the history. They knew the history that Moses had died. It was in their scripture. They knew about Elijah because he'd been talked about. He was a famous guy, you know, especially because he didn't die the way the scripture talks about him. So they knew about them. Again, Jesus probably did mention them, I would imagine, that he was talking with them. Yeah, could be. Because something, something unique was happening there. And we're here talking about it, you know, some 2,000 years later. But yeah, I mean, there was some kind of dimensional, transformational, metamorphical thing happening, you know, that happened in a moment that they are writing down. And we got so little information and so many questions, you know. But yeah, it could very well be, you know, there was just this glimpse of awareness. You know, uh, it reminded me what you said, it reminded me of Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Yeah, I think a lot of us can get stuck with wanting to just know and have it definitive. And I think it can become part of our mindset that you... It's written down, so it's kind of like a test. You just have to study it, learn the information, and then you pass the test. You know, and so I got all the information. Now I just I know what it means. And there's so many things we just don't fully understand what they mean. Um, and it's good to have that awareness that you don't understand everything. I think that's healthy. I think the people who try and portray that they understand everything um, can do more damage sometimes than good because they are short-sighted of so many things, you know. And so you start putting things together that fit with your interpretation, and then when you come across something that doesn't fit, you just ignore it. Just, oh, well, you know, we don't know. That's something. But here's our line. Here's how it all works. But what do you do with this? You know, and then it throws a wrench in everything. And so it's good to look at the scriptures as alive, you know, yeah, there's certain things foundational do not change, and there are certain things that we are still figuring out and learning. You know, all prophecies were clear afterwards, but beforehand, they didn't fully grasp them. You know, and I think that's still going to be true. We're going to look back and go, oh, okay, I see that now, you know, but I didn't see it. Like, you know, Elijah must come. Well, John the Baptist fulfilled that. Oh, 
Okay, they weren't thinking that. They're waiting for some guy flying from heaven come down on Elijah, fulfilling. And Jesus said, "No, it's been fulfilled through John, Spirit of God, who was in Elijah, was in John, proclaiming the way, preparing the way. He did the job. That's fulfilling it." And they're, "Oh, okay. We wouldn't have seen that. How could you?" You know, or when Jesus was born, there's weeping, and, and when Herod killed the children, you know, in that scripture prophesied of the, how would you have known that was going to be fulfilled that way? It wasn't until afterwards that you understood. I'm giving a precursor when I go through the end time stuff. I don't know. Let's go on to this chapter. So, anyway, well, this has been fun. I like your guys' involvement. Keep it up. So read chapter 18 and come back with questions and come back with thoughts and let's do it again. Let's pray. Lord, bless our time just now after we're done. Allow us to continue uh, conversing with one another, enjoying each other's company. And I'm so Thankful for all that transpired here tonight, Lord, just the involvement, the engagement, Lord, the, the ability to be open and, and not afraid to ask questions. God, there isn't stupid questions, really. It's our desiring to know. And Lord, you always are interested in those who are seeking. You are always there to meet those who are inquisitive and wondering. Father, you've created and designed us that way. And so I just thank you for this opportunity for us to involve ourselves together collectively. May it continue, Lord, throughout the evening and throughout the week until we meet again. And trust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.